Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Uh, good morning and welcome to 3CR. You are listening to Green Left Radio, the Friday breakfast show. And in the studio this morning, uh, I'm Zane and we've got... Uh, go. And also we have a special guest this morning, which is... Kumba Ali. Kumba Ali. Um, so we're actually going to start this morning talking to Kumba about um, the Baluchistan independence struggle, uh, the struggle for self-determination there. And then um, we've also got interviews coming up later on with Nico Lecker from the Hunter Asylum Seeker Awareness Group, uh, Jim Casey, the uh, Fire Brigade Employees Union Secretary, who's been pre-selected to run for the Greens in the seat of Grandler, and also Julie Lyford from Gloucester Groundswell uh, about AGL's decision announced yesterday to pull out of the Gloucester... Uh, coal seam gas project so uh, a packed morning with a bunch of interviews but uh, yeah I'm looking forward to hearing um, uh, yeah hearing from Kumbo about uh, Baluchistan yeah alright so Kumbo yeah tell us about Baluchistan where where is Baluchistan and well um, first of all yeah first of all let me thank you guys uh, and the Green Left Radio to allow me uh, to come over here and uh, speak about an issue which has not been touched or not popular enough um, in the Western media. Um, yeah, so um, my name is Kamra Ali. I'm from Baluchistan, a land of Baluch. Um, Baluchistan is actually located in between Iran, Pakistan and Afghanistan. It's a Texas-sized land hmm. in the area, and uh, Baluchistan, um, until 1947, it was um, under the British, not completely though, you know, they had the treaties with the British. Uh, on 11th of August 1947, it was independent. It gained independence on that day, and that was three days before Pakistan gets an independent. And it was in an independent state until um, March 1948, where the Pakistani army, uh, you know, invaded Baluchistan and forcefully annexed Baluchistan into Pakistan. Yeah, and since then we have we had five insurgencies. The one we started in 1948, the very day of annexation. Um, the next one was in 1958 by uh, Nurul Khan. A 19 years old man with his sons and his tribemen uh, fought against the Pakistani army and um, the Pakistani army actually wanted to negotiate with him uh, by saying that, you know, uh, you guys come down 
uh, we will negotiate with you people and, uh, you know, um, by giving uh, promises and also on the name of the holy book, Quran, that if you come down here, we will negotiate with you, you know. And Nuruz Khan, he comes down, there's no negotiation at whatsoever. <laughs> And then he's and he he's put in behind the jail in Hyderabad, and his sons and um, occupiers have a tendency yeah, to yeah, not be uh, very good to their word. <laughs> and 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 his son and his nephews were hanged were there. Um, then there was an insurgency on 19, uh, 1962, 63. Um, then again, um, in 1971, when Pakistan actually broke down. And the East Pakistan became Bangladesh, so there was a new fresh election. And uh, the first time Balochistan, as a province in that in in Pakistan, uh, they had those elected members, National Awami Party, a party which represents the Baluch people and the Pashtun people as well. So that didn't last long. In nine months' time, the Prime Minister of Pakistan dismantled NAP, which is National Awami Party. And all the leaders were kept in jail. Again, there was a huge uh, insurgency, which went till 1979, and um, so many people were killed. Yeah, and um, the 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 last and the recent one, which is still going on, is has started from 90 uh, from 2004, um, and then it got worse after the assassination of. Um, uh, Nawab Akbar Khan Bukti, an 80 years old man who fought for the rights of Baluch people. And it's still going on. And, uh, yeah. Because, um, only just recently as well, the, what is it, um, the leader of the, uh, Baluchi self-determination movement was found murdered. Yeah, Dr. Manan, are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. Well, Dr. Manan, uh, belongs to Baluch national movement. Um, he was, uh, Secretary General of of Baluch National Movement, and uh, he's a widely respected person for his work for, um, uh, for, for, for humanity, for uh, internally displaced people. He has worked a lot, and he was a very staunch nationalist as well. He never accepted the occupation of Pakistan. Um, recently, in 2013, uh, there was an earthquake in Balochistan in our own area, he has worked enormously in these places, you know, and um, he was recently killed by the Pakistani army. And, and he was not even a, a freedom fighter, in a sense, armed freedom fighter. He was a very peaceful man. But in Pakistan, you know, a good village is known to be a dead village. Yeah. An educated person from, uh, an educated person in Balochistan cannot survive and cannot uh, express uh, his ideas so openly in that society, and, and that's something that's a regular occurrence, isn't it? In um, the, in Baluch, in Baluchistan, yes, is the disappearance and or the, the expedition oh, yes. killing. Yeah, yeah. In, in in past five six years, there were thousands of missing persons, and hundreds of mutilated bodies were thrown under the kill and dump policy, as it was mentioned in the in, in the Guardians and in other articles as well. I mean, uh, Pakistan's own Human Rights Commission report says that all these killings, um, you know, the finger is pointed out to the establishment and to the army and their proxy uh, death squad, 
they're using the same tactics what they used in uh, Bangladesh in 1971. They create these proxies, we call them death squad, yeah, within the community. It sounds very similar to the military juntas in Argentina. Yeah, same, same. In Argentina, the dirty war of Argentina, yeah. we are facing exactly the same thing. You know, people are being picked, people are being disappeared forcefully, and they go missing for years and years, and, and then their mutilated bodies are thrown and dumped in the uh, street and mountains of Balochistan just to create this whole atmosphere of fear so that no one can, you know, speak some, anything. And uh, in 2000, 2014, we had um, a, a, a long march under the supervision of Mama Kadir, a 72 years old man, along with 20 women, young women, with two kids, marched all the way from Karachi, uh, from Quetta to Karachi, and then from Karachi to Islamabad's United Nations headquarters. That's equal to 3,000 kilometers walk. And there was absolutely no media coverage whatsoever. You know, and some of the Pakistan's media person have, have blamed him for, you know, <laughs> um, um, for taking money, you know, for, for charging for these walks, which is ridiculous. Yeah. So the next question I was going to ask, like, what are some of the, the forces involved in the struggle in Pakistan, in, in the Balochistan, in, the, in Pakistan, you know, for the independence struggle, like, um, you know, you've mentioned this march, like, what are some of the other um, movements and organisations that are involved? Well, in, in, in Balochistan, we have uh, the Baluch Student Organisation, which I belong from, uh, and there's a Baluch National Movement, that's a party, a political party. Okay. And then there's a Baluch Republican Party, uh, that's run by Bramdag Bukti, the grandson of Nawab Akbar Khan Bukti, who was assassinated in 2006. And then there's a platform of Baluch Sun uh, National Front, where all these parties, you know, share the, they share the same platform, basically. And then we have the other parties as well, who are, um, under, who, who are under the constitution of Pakistan, who, um, want to work within the framework of Pakistan. We have Balochistan National Party and National Party. Yeah, that's how, that's the scenario. So you, you can see how it is. I mean, it's not so um, not so clear yet how we should gain our independence, unfortunately. But the pro-independence party are under attack. I mean, and it sounds like when you have situations where people are being disappeared and, and, and murdered that you don't leave, it, it makes it very hard for people to believe in a peaceful struggle. You know, it feels like there's, it seems like there's not much other avenue available. It seems like... That's what, the, that's what the Pakistani establishment want. They don't want peace in that area. The moment you talk about peace, the moment you have this peaceful struggle, you know, they always push you to the wall so that you fight. You, you raise your arm and then they get a chance to, to, to claim you as a terrorist yeah. and kill you. And tell their own audience that look, see what happened. These guys are with weapons, they're armed, and they're terrorists. Also, the biggest terrorist in that area is Taliban, and we all know who created Taliban. Yeah. Uh, speaking about you know the peaceful struggle, uh, most of the people, most of the uh, activists, uh, political activists, students, professors, poets were killed, and they all were peaceful. They all were. 
that the struggle was peaceful, not armed struggle. But they were killed. I can tell you an example of my own professor, Professor Sabah Dashtiari. He was uh, assassinated uh, in 2011 only because he had different views than uh, Islamabad. Yeah, it's, it's, it just goes beyond belief. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, the situation in Bolsonaro is very, very difficult. And uh, there's no media. There's a self-censored um, media in all over Pakistan. There's exactly black media. There's, there's nothing in Balochistan. You cannot report anything. You know, Pakistan claims to be the most dangerous place for journalists. More than 60 journalists were killed in Pakistan for the past 8 to 10 years. But majority of them are from Balochistan which is uh, the least populated area of Pakistan. So you, so you, can, you can imagine how, how hard the situation is there, even for the media person to report what's exactly happening. And now after the CPAC, the Chinese-Pakistani Economical Corridor, after this, now there's a complete uh, blackout as well. I mean, we don't know what's happening with the CPAC. The, all the, the routes in which the CPAC is being built, Pakistani army has been... Uh, torturing houses and burning people's house and uh, there's a um, how can I say there, there's a bombardment in the villages of uh, Baluchistan in Gumazi, in Dasht, in Turbad, in Panjgur, in Mastung, in Bolan and, and it goes on and on and there's no one to report actually because I understand the, the that the that part of Pakistan, well, the Baluchi part of Pakistan is actually a very economically important area as well, like not just as a transport corridor, but also many resources come from that area? Oh, yes. Baluchistan is uh, rich with uh, mineral resources. We have gold, we have uh, coal, we have uh, gas, uh, we have uh, you know, so many things. So yeah, it adds <laughs> an economic aspect to you know, yeah, the occupation. So, uh, I don't know whether it's a fortunate thing or unfortunate for us, <laughs> because we are known to be uh, the richest people on earth because of the land we have, and at the same time the poor, the poorest um, people on earth. Yeah, I mean, well. I often read like in um, developing nations, you know, it was like it was always seen. It was kind of like oil was kind of seen as a curse because once you knew you had oil. Yes. Yeah, everybody wanted to come and get you, so it seems it's exactly and the same, same, with and same yeah. with Baluchistan, you know. The Gwadar port is an important, strategically very important area for all over the world. 90% of the oil passes from Strait of Hermuz to Gwadar. Now, Chinese have their eye on that. And Pakistan is, uh, as we see, that Pakistan is selling that port to the, to the Chinese. Yeah, okay. Now, Pakistan is trying to build uh, not, not, not now, it's been 10, 12 years that Pakistan is trying to build the port, to make it an international port, an operation port for the Chinese to come in and, and you know, uh, for, well, it's basically under the construction of Chinese now. We as a Belush people, we say that this port is being built under the cost of our nation because the population of Gwadar is not more than 100,000. Now, if Gwadar port is built, let's assume it's built and it's not, it's working, it's operational now. All the people in Pakistan, you know, because only five percent is five percent of Pakistan's population is Balochistan. So, 
we 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 the way we see it is that we will be minority in our own area. Now it's a hundred thousand. It's a, it's a, it's a Gwadar is hundred thousand people. If five million people are brought in Gwadar, where will the village go? We will be minority in our own area, and just like the Red Indians and Aboriginals, you know, we yeah. will we will disappear. Yeah, we, we can't do anything. So we are stopping the and we are against the CPAC in the sense that we don't want Chinese to build it the way they're building now. You're listening to Green Left Radio Breakfast on 3CR, and we have Kamba Ali, a Baluchi uh, self-determination activist, in the studio. Yeah, so how can you um, tell us like what people in Australia can do to support the Baluchi national movement? Oh, so, yeah. Well, all, of, all we want from Australia and all of the the whole nation, <clears throat> all countries in the world, to support us morally, you know. We want everyone to be aware of what's happening in that part of the world. Because every time you, hear, you, you read the news, it's all about Taliban, Pakistan, Iran, nuclear, uh, you know, all about those stuff, and then Syria war, which is as important, you know. But our struggle, the Baluch struggle, the Baluchistan struggle, the independence of Baluchistan, it's not covered at all. So we want the Australian people to know what's happening in that part of the world. There's so much of human rights violation, and Baluchistan is the only secular land in that entire area of Iran, Islamic Republic of Iran, Islamic Republic of Pakistan, Afghanistan under the Taliban attack. The Baluch are the only secular and liberal voice in that region. So this is this is our message to to uh, to the Western audience, and since I'm in Australia, to the Australian audience that support the Baluch cause. Not only because of this independence, independence is in the far reach, but the basic human right abuses we all can stop it by raising our voice. That's what I can say. Yeah. Well, I think um, I think it's an important, a really important struggle to get behind. To me, it just rings so. Loudly, like you know, in similarity with the struggle of the Kurds, Kurds as well, and yeah, I think the, it's, the, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much the same. The Kurds are divided in uh, in four countries: Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Syria. Same with the Belarus people; we are divided in three countries: Pakistan, Iran, and Afghanistan. Yeah. No, and that makes it more harder. Actually. Yeah, mm. yeah. 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 But no, all for mm. international solidarity. Yeah, for real. thank you. All right, thanks each for coming in this morning. Thank you very much for you guys to invite me over here. Thank it's you. It's a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. You're tuned to 3CR 855 on your m If you just tuned in to 3CR why would you stay listening and listening a while? Alrighty. Uh, now this morning we have got Nico Lecker from Hunter Asylum Seeker Awareness Group on the line. Welcome, Nico. Good morning, Tim. Um, so uh, yesterday there was an announcement from the High Court 
that it is uh, actually legal for the Australian government to turn refugees into unpeople and keep them in concentration camps. What what was the exact sort of what what exactly did the High Court find in in making that decision? And and uh, yeah, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, basically, um, the High Court found that it was legal for the Australian government to um, put people in these overseas camps because um, the government, both houses, uh, sorry, both houses, both parties, Liberal Labor, had passed a section which they put into the Migration Act um, last year, which was Section 198 AHA. Um, if they hadn't put that section in, then the court probably would have found that it was not legal, that Australia did not have the authority to do that. But they put in that section, 198AHA, and it basically says, they quote from it, the Commonwealth may do any or all of the following, and basically take any action in relation to arrangements in regional processing functions of the country, make payments um, in relation to those arrangements, do anything else that is um, conducive to taking such action, and to avoid doubt, subsection is intended to ensure the Commonwealth has the capacity and authority to take action without otherwise affecting the lawfulness of that action. And then, nothing in this section limits the executive power of the Commonwealth. Hmm. It's great, isn't it? It's a great um, piece of legislation. Hmm. It's carte blanche. You know, it's um, despotic. Yeah. One of the um, members of the, the bench of the High Court that was looking at this made a dissenting uh, report, though. Michelle Gordon, I think her name was, um, one of six. And um, I think her reasoning was fairly straightforward. She said, basically, it's wrong. And um, that the Australian government um, is responsible for what happens there because they pay for it um, and they organise it. And she gave, I think, a whole, a whole list of um, the things that the Australian government is doing that more or less says that that we're responsible for what's happening there. It's underneath our control and, um, and that we shouldn't be doing it. Mm. That it's wrong. I haven't got it. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. That um, she says the reasoning is wrong. She found it's Australia who, did, who uh, detains people on Nauru because the, the government is trying to argue, oh, because they're on Nauru, it's the responsibility of the Nauruan government or because they're on Man, it's the responsibility of the um, PNG government. She said, that's wrong. It's Australia who was detaining those people. And she gave like 12 specific actions that the government was making, um, which makes that conclusion, her conclusion, unarguable. And that is that we signed a memorandum of understanding with these people, which basically says, yeah, we make all the administrative arrangements and pay for it um, by physically removing people to Nauru, by applying for visas on their behalf without even their consent and paying the fee. Etc. 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 So hers was the only one to sort of cut through the black letter of the law and say, no, it's wrong. Mm. I've um, I've heard some reports over the years about places like uh, Guam, where there's that military base, and uh, Guantanamo Bay, and it's the best description I've heard is that governments intentionally create these legal grey areas so that they can um, do um, unholy things there, like put people in concentration camps indefinitely. Yeah, um, I, that's very much so, very much the case. I mean, at first it was 
you know, it's kind of like a cynical comparison that we would make that, oh, you know, Australia's um, uh, Nauru is similar to uh, Guantanamo Bay, but um, in fact, it's, as it transpires, it's deliberately so, and um, there's, there's no avoiding that fact. That, I mean, the government has to be, um, every single day, there's further and further reports from reputable, you know, international independent bodies um, saying that, what we're doing is um, is disgraceful. It's, um, you know, it's depraved conduct. Mm. Um, and I mean, in a way, you know, Guantanamo Bay it's there for a specific political purpose, really. So they'll do all this stuff in the name of the war on terror. But in Australia, we're doing it not in the name of the war on terror, but in the name of saving lives. It's you know, it's uh, mm. it's incredible to think. Like a sick joke. Yeah. And in fact, and that's a joke that we really have to expose because they will justify that um, conduct saying, oh, we're saving lives, and it's not. You know, you're not saving lives by um, condemning people to indefinite torture, really. Mm. And then we'll um, you know, um, give it sort of fancy names, you know, border protection and stuff like that. We've got to just say, that's not border protection. Yeah, that's, that is torture. And, uh, of course, there's big snap protests around the country yesterday. Uh, we've got Fergal here in the studio with this, Nico. Um, Fergal was... I had work yesterday, but Fergal, you were at the um, protest in Melbourne yesterday. How 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 was that? Oh, it was pretty good. 5, 000, there was about 5,000 people there. Uh, at 5,000 people at an emergency rally, I mean, like I think that was called maybe, what, four days? Four days' notice, which is pretty good turnout. Mm. And the thing that most impressed me was the diversity of groups there. I mean, of course, you know, there was, um, you know, big Greens turnout, big Socialist Alternative, Socialist Alliance, all the usual kind of faces. But what was, you know, the thing it's always impresses me is when you start getting the broader forces within the community, you know, like big presence from the Uniting Church, the unions, the Victorian Trades Hall count, uh, was there, um, who else? The, um, the big good presence by the NUW and lots of school groups. It was it was just fantastic to see just how diverse. Um, and and it's it and it just goes to show that um, the types of people who are getting involved. I mean, it's it's people who usually wouldn't think to be involved in activism, who would usually just be happy to you know like mm. you know, generally don't really see this stuff as being so important. They're actually really starting to realise well that you know silence is essentially. Uh, complicity and mm. you know and and yeah but um yeah and, but, like, and yeah. Uh, Nico there was a, a snap protest in Newcastle as well yesterday how, how yeah, did that go yeah and it, it echoes very much what um, Fergal says there was um a lot of variety of, you know, again you know only a couple of days notice um over 250 people which is really good for Newcastle it was um it was um, quite crowded there was a lot of support from um, traffic going past and um. For a snap protest, we had, um, it was open mic, you know, and there was something like um, 10 different speakers, all making quite different points, all from different areas of life, you know, church, civic, um, local councillors, um, the university and so on. Um, and um, one of the things that, um, uh, I'm, a li- I'm a little bit despotic, I must admit, but I said, and I made it clear that, People have got to learn three things. There's three planks of action. One is the action that's taking place in the International Criminal Court. Um, there's a um, Victorian rack and there's a couple of um, complaints in there. There's also 
the um, broader action taking place nationally regarding the Australian Border Force legislation with um, the petitions by Christine Cummings, Alison Hughes and John Paul Sangaran. That's three petitions, about 8,000 related to that, which we're trying to align with the Greens um, amendment to the Maritime Powers Act, which essentially would overturn the secrecy and intimidation parts of the Border Force Act. That's a national thing. And then the local thing, the No Business in Abuse campaign, which is taking off around Australia regarding local councils. Hmm. Uh, saying, and that was a message that we pushed, and people seem to pick that up quite well. That, you know, there's three, those three planks. And then the fourth thing is exactly what everyone was doing yesterday. It was coming out, protesting, being together, um, making sure that everyone knows. Because, yeah, there were faces there I hadn't seen before, and faces from groups all across the spectrum. It was great, and um, there was a lot of energy, a lot of energy. Um, people are really steamed up and angry about this latest step. And um, was it the Anglican Church in Brisbane offered the, the church grounds as a place of sanctuary for people in, in imminent risk of being deported to, to know? Yeah, I believe so. Um, we had someone from Newcastle Anglican Church come down, but um, I don't think they've quite made up their minds on that score, but the Anglican Church in, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Brisbane, and it wouldn't surprise me if the one in Melbourne follows suit, but, um, yeah, they're, they're quite extraordinary. They're taking quite a lead um, in this business, the Anglicans. Um, they did last year as well. They offered us the cathedral, um, the cathedral grounds for um, the Refugee Week protest. Mm. For people who don't know, there's this uh, iconic cathedral up on the hill in Newcastle that overlooks the whole city. So the, uh, the Anglican Church allowed there to, to be a, uh, a full-blooded radical refugee protest held in, in their grounds last year, which is good That's to see. That's right. You were there. You chaired it, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, what's, uh, what other protest actions are on the horizon for the, for the refugee movement um, in Palm Newcastle Sunday. nationally? That's the big one. Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday, the 20th of March, yeah. And that's also going to be... Not only around Australia, but around the world. Um, yeah, big protests being planned for. I think in the UK it might be the 19th. I uh, know your Melbourne guys are doing one on the, the 20th, Adelaide, Perth, Brisbane, Canberra. So, um, yeah, and I think that was also um, something that we pushed that get along to um, Palm Sunday because, in a way, it's, it's a bit hard sometimes to quantify what the impact of these rallies has, but... Um, it feels right. It feels like this is democracy at work. People getting up there, talking, and so on. I'm it sure seems like they're going from strength to strength as well. I mean, again, five thousand at a at a snap rally. I remember. Mm. I mean, you know, um, I think I went to a get up rally last year for refugees, a vigil, and there was ten thousand. But that had you know like weeks of planning, and this you know just with barely any planning at all, five thousand people. It just goes to show that. You know, it's something. It's just something that's you know growing of you know more and more importance within the community for something to be done. You know, for a you know for a just and humane you know outcome. Mm. Very much, very much agree with that. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much, Nico. And okay. uh, yeah, keep it staunch up there in Newcastle. Thank you, uh, and thank you to the Melbourne crew with the five thousand. Good on you. Okay. Cheerio. All right. All right. See you soon. Uh, Nico Lecker there from uh, Hunter Asylum Seeker Awareness Group up in uh, Newcastle. Alrighty. 
You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday Morning Breakfast Show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855am digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. All right, so you're listening to Green Left Radio. A uh, little bit of news now. In Brisbane, there's been a picket established at the uh, Dulux plant in Rocklea. Workers are fighting for two key elements, the payment of sick leave and for redundancy payouts to be uncapped. At the moment, uh, yeah, there's um, United Voice uh, have been, uh, yeah, launching a, a, um, have been undertaking industrial action against a community picket, I should say, against uh, Dulux, who, um, uh, despite increased profits, uh, yeah, oh no, they're looking, yeah, so, um, Dulux after, yeah, made three million dollars in profits last year, yet, uh, looking to cut 40, uh, have cut 40 jobs and refusing to, um, mm. deal fairly with, uh, workers. Alright, um, well, we'll, uh, we'll keep our listeners posted on the Dulux picket action up there, uh, in, uh, Bris Vegas. It's, it is in Brizzy, isn't it? Yeah, 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 mm. Rock, yeah, yeah, Rockley, West, oh, what is it, yeah, Western Suburbs. Yeah, so the, the struggle rolls on. Uh, we will keep you posted about that in uh, coming days and weeks. Hopefully the workers are victorious. Um, for now, though, we have got um, Jim Casey on the line. Um, Jim is uh, was until very recently the um, Secretary of the Fire Brigade Employees Union in New South Wales. Um, one second. And... Yeah, so Jim was until recently Secretary of the Fire Brigade Employees Union in New South Wales and has just been uh, pre-selected by the Greens to run in the seat of Graindler in Sydney. And last week, Anthony Albanese, who's the ALP member in the seat, uh, lambasted um, Anthony for being a socialist. And one of the things that Albanese said in his little tirade was, it's unfortunate that the Greens have been captured in this area and in New South Wales by people who have a history in the Socialist Party of Australia or the International Socialists or the Socialist Workers Party and want to use the Green Banner to advance an agenda that's about anything but the environment. Um, is that true, Jim? Are you just pretending to be concerned about climate change when you're helping put out massive bushfires? <laughs> Yeah, the, the bottom line, Zane, I'm in deep cover, you know. <laughs> went underground years ago. Look, you know, this is it's just not credible. I mean, you know, I think there's two immediate responses. One is, uh, you know, socialists, most socialists I've ever met um, are environmentalists. I mean, it's consistent with a, with a socialist worldview to understand that the, you know, the environment uh, is something we need to actually, you know, live in coexistence with. And that the commodification of that is every bit as dangerous for the species as the commodification of our own labour power. So on that first step, you just kind of go, oh, God. But look, the second thing, the really significant thing, the reason why I've joined the Greens is because um, my actual experience of, of climate change through firefighting made me think that this is something which needed a more explicit political emphasis. Hmm. That's why I'm where I am. So, you know, look, it's a bit of a, a nice attempt at a smear, uh, <laughs> but that's about all it is, really. 
Mm. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought the Labor Party trying to smear socialists? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Hold the front page. <laughs> uh, but look, I've got to say, I mean, you know, I'd expect it from some of the uglies of the New South Wales right. This bloke heads up the socialist left. Um, you know, that, that's that's a slightly new development. Hmm. Um, now, I, I saw you, Jim, at the National Convergence of People Campaigning Against Coal and Coal Seam Gas at Curry Curry back in 2013. Yeah, yeah. I reckon you were the only union leader in attendance. Anthony Albanese certainly wasn't there. Um, and I remember you remarking at the time, more unionists should be involved in the movement to drag the economy away from fossil fuels to renewables. What, what role can unions play in, in making that transition happen? Look, I think it's um, I think it's actually quite a delicate question. And just on that, beyond coal and gas, um, an honourable mention to John Robertson. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, yeah, mm. like he's he's from the right of the ALP, and I think that mm. when you see people, particularly from the more conservative parts of um the broader Labor movement, reaching out like that, it should be recognised. Mm. Um, so yeah, more more power to him. And you know, like again, the left was conspicuous in its absence. Uh, the left of the Labor Party were conspicuous in their absence at that event. But more, more broadly, forgetting about the, the Labor Party and the apparatchiks, I mean, the, the Labor movement's engagement with this is always going to be fraught. There's very strong um, unions full of really committed, serious unions who have their livelihood entirely tied up with um, with old, dirty industries. Mm. Uh, now, so unions like the Fairfield Union Mining Division have got a very good position on climate uh, and a pretty good position on coal, but they are always going to be suffering under the fact that Regardless of the rationality in, in terms of the longer term, if you're talking to someone who's looking at an immediate threat of job loss, uh, there's not many arguments which are going to, you know, take precedence over that. You know, I'll worry about the planet once I've sorted out my mortgage and my kids' education. It's actually a reasonable position. So it's a delicate question. There's sections of the movement which are going to be more responsive than others, which means I think the challenge is making sure that front and centre is questions about just transition. Mm. So that the stronger bits, not that so much the stronger, the bits of the movement that are more divorced from the immediate economic changes associated with transition. Mm. So public sector unions, I think, are a really good example. Need to be raising the question about what do you do for the men and women who currently work in dirty industries? And I don't think it's enough just to say there'll be jobs with windmills. I think it needs to be really quite targeted. Uh, and I've had tip here to Adam Bant, some of the stuff he's been doing in the Latrobe Valley around what should happen to the jobs currently caught up with those uh, coal, dirty coal power stations is exactly the kind of template I think we need. And the reason for that is really because, you know, why would anyone trust politicians talking about nebulous jobs to come? I mean, I think we need detail. We need to fight for that detail. We need to make sure that people are going to have that transition with dignity. Mm. Um, now, Gareth Bryant submitted a study as part of the Greens Reboot Conference back in 2014, and yep. among other things, he argued that large-scale public investment in renewables is an essential part of effective action on climate change and and generating those jobs in those areas where they're needed, like the Latrobe Valley and, and the Hunter Valley. What, what do yep. you think of that? Yeah, I look, I think Gareth's from the money. Um, and it's interesting, actually, like... In a, you know, well, look, I'll, I'll run with it. <laughs> so tell me what you think it is. You know, when you talk about the, the golden age of, of capital expansion, particularly in the States, where the railroad barons were, um, were, were like basically stretching out the, the infrastructure across that continent, which was going to allow, um, American capitalism to thrive. Mm. 
some of that was purely private sector, but when you look at the intervention of the state and allowing that to happen through military support where they needed it, through uh, you know sort of financial support and all the rest of it, it was, it was, it was enormous. The argument being essentially that in order to have the conditions for the American um, American economy to thrive, there needed to be some kind of directed state intervention with it. In exactly the same way, whether you're talking about transition to something post-capitalist or not, what is clear is we need clean and renewable energy sources in the, in the medium term, medium to longer term. And mm. if the state doesn't provide the actual impetus for that, no one else will. Mm. I think that's a really interesting point that you make. I mean, aside from the old, you know, capitalism exists because of the state. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, essentially, you know, cap- uh, a capitalism relies on essentially, you know, what, I mean, what people would say a socialist means to keep it going. And, and oftentimes it's for the state to intervene in such a way to spur on development in a more, you know, somewhat progressive way when, you know, like otherwise, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, um, you know, owners of private uh, industry would rather things just keep on going along as they are because it's, it's cheaper to do that than reinvest in completely new technology. Well, I think it can be even worse than that. I think it's quite possible that far-sighted sections of the business community can see the need to move, but because they're all in competition with one another, they can't be the one who's going to take the financial hit of laying out the first, the first round of investment. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I mean, I don't think it's even, you don't need to quite go to the kind of, you know, top hat monopoly capitalist who's kind of going, you know, ha ha, I don't care. <laughs> you know, you actually don't. You can have, you know, the most far sided people in the world running the Fortune 500 country companies <clears throat> where their shareholders will crucify them if they start dropping money on something, which isn't going to actually allow them to maintain market share, maintain their profit levels. And that, that's what the state does. In, in, in actually, you know, in a capitalist sense, that's what the state can do in these environments, make decisions for the entire economy, the entire capitalist class, the entire whatever collective you want to talk about. They've got the capacity to transcend those internal divisions. Um, and this is what we saw with Rudd and Gillard during the, um, the GFC stimulus. You know, it's exactly the same question. Hmm. You know, you speak to anyone apart from the Liberal Party when they're on the rant and they'll recognise that was the one of the significant things which actually meant the Australian economy weathered that. Private, private, private industry could not have done it, just by definition couldn't have done it. Hmm. Um, now, Jim, we've seen the rise of Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and Bernie Sanders in the USA over the past few months. I was reading an article just uh, yesterday or the day before saying that 84% of Democrat supporters in Iowa aged 18 to 29 voted for Sanders, and this is unprecedented. Um, do you reckon the idea of socialism is experiencing a bit of a renewal or rebirth? Look, I, I wish that was the case. I, I'm not sure. I think more likely what's going on is just a level of genuine disenchantment hmm. so that people are open to alternatives. And, and uh, you know, look, I, 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 look, I, I, I watch what's happening with Corbyn and Sanders and feel, you know, joy. You know, I mean, it, it is wonderful to see. Hmm. Um, so don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to rain on our parade here. Uh, but the thing which worries me, and I think this is where we need to be mindful, we're not seeing the corresponding spike in union density, in uh, mm. industrial unrest, mm. in winds for our side. Mm. We, we are seeing an environmental movement that continues to grow, but many of the other social movements are stagnant or going backwards. So there's a part of me which is very concerned that that, that change of invading patterns is a reflection of a desire for people to see something different and a lack of confidence in their own, their own capacity to act. Mm. 
which is where I, I do think that the challenge then for the Corbyns and the Sanders and for the New South Wales Greens and for any other progressive force electorally is to understand that their role is, you know, really, I think, you know, 50%, half of the job we're doing is about actually trying to reflect and build the social movements which we're coming from. Uh, any any attempt to do anything apart from that, really, I think it's going to... You might win the election. You might win the battle of the election, but you lose the war overall if you don't have those movements growing and combating down uh, alongside you in, in such a way as to, to provide that kind of like the social forces you need to push these agendas. Mm, absolutely. Well, uh, it's good to, ke- good to see you keeping your eye on the ball and uh, uh, maintaining the... the the, the clear view that, that we need this nexus of some parliamentary representatives, but that social movements are, are so crucial to, to making real change. So, Absolutely. best of luck with the uh, with the campaign in thanks coming, very much, man. coming yeah. months. And uh, yeah, thanks. I will have a laugh. Look, sports better got me at five dollars fifteen, I think. So it's a long shot. Really? But, um, I wouldn't have it for fifteen. Oh no, no, no. We need to be realistic on this one. Like you know, Albanese's mm. um, Albanese's got a you know, big machine, high, well-known, he's almost the alternative prime minister. Um, I think it's doable, but certainly my headspace on this is that if at the end of this election campaign we're either, we've either won it or we're close, and as importantly, WestConnect is stronger, um, you know, to the extent that there's informal networks of, of trade union activists in the area that they're stronger, mm. uh, that if the station is stronger at the end of its process, then we have won. Um, the rest of it will be, you know, the rest will be icings on cakes. <laughs> yeah, nice. All right. All right. Thanks, gentlemen. Yeah, thanks talk. again. Later. Yeah, no worries. See you, See you. Yeah, Solidarity! <laughs> Alrighty. And, uh... Yes, yeah, Jim Casey there from the, uh, until recently, Secretary of the New South Wales Fryer Brigade Employees Union, and he's had to step down from that position because he's been pre-selected by the Greens to run in the seat of Grinder against uh, Anthony Albanese. Alrighty, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio. Hey, this is Pressure MC from the Hilltop Hoods. Hey, what's up? This is Safa from the Hilltop Hoods. You're listening to 3CR. 8.55 a.m. on your dial. Support community radio and subscribe now. All right, so as you just heard from Pressure and Suffer, you're listening to 3CR. This is the Green Left Radio Breakfast Show. It is uh, seven minutes to eight on a Friday morning. And the weekend is nearly upon us. So what's been happening in the news? So we got protests, block, electoral fraud, movement calls for solidarity in Haiti. Hmm. Um, 68, grassroots, 68 grassroots groups in Haiti have issued an urgent call for solidarity with their struggle for free and fair elections, dignity and justice. Um, this, the statement written right before the postponement of the planned presidential runoff on the January 24. Um, it was written by as tens of thousands of Haitians were in the street braving assassination, tear gas, beatings, police torture. They demanded the annulment of the fraudulent elections that gave the lead positions in the legislative and presidential races to the hand-picked candidates, President Michael Matali. 
The postponement of the presidential election was dramatic and a hard-won victory for the people's movement, which had insisted that no election take place until it can be assured to be free, fair and democratic. The struggle for the right to vote for all, and for all Haitians to participate in political process continues. And then follows a statement. Um, yeah, but um, I think that's pretty big news. Mm. Um, I, I, I just remembering, um, was it in 2004, there was, uh, just trying to remember his name, some Is astride uh, President John Bertrand astride uh, overthrown by a US backed coup yeah yeah um, yeah was that um, was that when the earthquake happened it was I think yeah it was shortly after or shortly before the earthquake was kind of used as a pretext to yeah and, and essentially Haiti was turned into a basket case like where it was pre- essentially you know like ruled by you know NGOs you know NGOs Hmm. Essentially, being the you know, puppets of Western governments as a way to kind of make, um, hmm. you know, yeah, the people dependent on foreign aid, which was a big setback because until that happened, they looked to be integrating with that sort of pink tide um, that's sweeping across uh, Latin America and, and the Caribbean. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So it's, I mean, and yeah, so it's great to see like that. Um, yeah, again, like in face of the kind of repression, people standing up in Haiti in such large numbers and demanding democracy. Mm. Yeah. Um, a, another news article, Grandmothers Against Removals Protest in Sydney. Um, this article by Jim McIlroy. Um, Grandmothers Against Removals, Sydney and supporters protested outside the office of New South Wales Department of Families and Community Service in Strawberry Hills on the 29th of January to demand the immediate return of Aboriginal children forcibly removed from Queensland family and placed in out-of-home care in Sydney. Kukalangi grandmother, uh, Auntie Karen Fusi from the Brisbane Sovereign Grannies Group addressed a crowd of about 60 uh, about the case. Other speakers included Auntie Jenny Munro, Auntie Val Colbung uh, from WA, Greens New South Wales MP David Shoebridge and STICS activist Paddy Gibson. The recently formed GMAR group, Sydney group, targeted this uh, FACS office for its ongoing role in the forced removals of Aboriginal children from their families. These removals mm. and placement of children in out-of-home care often breach uh, policies occur in the absence of support or engagement with families and without restoration plans. Uh, abrupt self-removals have become standard practice, creating intense trauma and dislocation from children, families and community at large. Currently, there have been more than 15,000 Aboriginal children in out-of-home care of any given night. This is more children than were forcibly removed um, than at any time in Australian history. Mm, so it's kind including of like, the Stalin generation. Yeah, mm. it's unbelievable just to think, like, in all that we know and all that's, you know, like, been shown to happen, you know, by, you know, taking people from their families... Mm. Um, yeah, it continues to be you know, done. Uh, like, it, yeah, it, it just it just sort of goes to show the paternalistic attitude of the state, you know, especially when it comes to you know the indigenous people of Australia. It's appalling. Mm. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due Wednesday, 17th of February at 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR's station manager, Mary McEwen, on 94198377 
or download the nomination form from the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au forward slash people. Now in the um, Fairfax media and elsewhere yesterday, it's been reported uh, 350 jobs to be slashed at CSIRO, including massive cuts to the climate change research and monitoring departments. Um, The Sydney Morning Herald quotes um, Andy Pittman, director of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate System Science at the University of New South Wales, said the scale of the cuts was jaw-droppingly shocking. It's a catastrophic reduction in our capacity to assess present and future climate change, Professor Pittman said. It will leave us vulnerable to future climate change and unable to take advantage of any positives that result, which uh, I wouldn't be uh, betting on too many positives coming out of climate change, although there may may be one or two here or there. Grow strawberries in Greenland. Oh, (laughs) woohoo. I should offset all the massive reduction in food production and fresh water availability. (laughs) Grow watercress in the Antarctic. Mm. Everyone loves watercress. Yeah, what else? Well, what have we got? Shenhua coal production in decline. So just on the topic of... uh, on the topic of um, climate change, um, yeah. China Shenzhou and the environment. Uh, China Shenzhou Energy reported an 18% decline in coal sales in 2015. Shenhua's internal coal production was down 8.4%, with a further 10% drop in sales from third-party providers. Its coal imports fell to almost nothing, reflecting an overall trend in which China's total coal imports were down 30%. Shenhua still says it's committed to the 1 billion watermark coal pressure in the Liverpool Plains of New South Wales, but the project now appears to lack financial backers. Hmm. It, yeah, um, yeah so it's a disgraceful project. I've been up there and visited that area, and it's a big natural valley with natural um, underground aquifers that are, that are... It's like a... It's really drought-proof. There's this... Uh, I don't know if you've heard of wicking garden beds. It's where you kind of water your garden bed and you, you put the water directly into the bottom of the bed, and then by capillary action it works its way up, and you don't lose heaps of water to evaporation off the top. And this is like a massive natural wicking garden bed, and in places there's like 50 metres deep of like natural compost. So Shenhua want to build this mine there, and then BHP Billiton want to build one right next to it, and it's just going to trash these aquifers. It's going to deplete all of that water out of there. And this is some of the most fertile, fertile agricultural land. Yeah, yeah in, in Australia and, and in the world. It's, it's an absolute disgrace that they're even thinking about mining there. But, I mean, and again, on top of that, no one even wants to buy the stuff. The stuff is not selling, you know, yeah. like it's becoming less and less and less profitable. You know, no, you know like, it's like, if it's not enough... For the, destruct, for the sake of the destruction of the environment, for the sake of the destruction of you know, fertile agricultural land that grows the food we need to eat, mm. no one wants to buy the coal. <laughs> you know, like, mm. it's just ridiculous. Like, where's the economic sense? It's like, you go and trash your, your kitchen, mm. um, and, you know, because you want to build a bathroom, and no one's going to the bathroom. You know? I've already got four bathrooms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah, same with the Dani. It's same with the Dani coal mine. Yeah. It's it, 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 it's like there's not 
it's like, it's, gosh, it's like there's not even economic rationale to it, you know. Mm. It's, it's pure ideology that somehow coal is good for us or something. God knows what. Mm. Uh, and just another little um, news update. This isn't in Grand Theft Weekly yet, although I'm sure it will be. Um, and a, a little trigger warning with this story. Um, mad effing witches and other staunch feminists of various stripe chase legal rape advocate douche v away. Um, so this person was from this medieval um, organisation called Return of Kings, ROK, and this person wanted to come to Australia from uh, the USA and hold some meetings to talk about why rape should be legalised on private property. Uh, the, the mind boggles that that people like this exist. Um, so on the Mad Effing Witches Facebook page, there was this update yesterday. Witchy persons, win, 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 win. Yes, the news is real. We have beaten ROK as they now appear to have cancelled plans for meetups with their supporters, including here in Australia. And it's got a link to a, a news.com.au article. Uh, and they uh, say the irony of a pro-rape group cancelling meetings because they... <laughs> don't feel safe is causing a lot of cackles and chuckles here at Mad Effing Witches HQ, we can tell you. So, uh, yeah, that was good to see a, a hastily thrown together campaign, massive online signatures, um, people ready to mobilise directly to, to stop this disgraceful... Um, this guy, um, I read, uh, like, someone had posted a thing, like, I think he's written a book or something like that, um, you know, like, talking about his tactics or something, and it's it's just plain out rape. Like, there's, it's just, he literally says, someone didn't want to have sex with me, I wanted to have sex with them, so I had sex with them, even though they didn't want to have sex with me, and they were repeatedly saying so the first time. It's, like... It's he's a rapist, mm. you know. Like there's mm. nothing about it, and like he's actually he said so. He says I'm like he doesn't even. It's like it's like he 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 self-incriminates. Mm. I yeah. It's it's really really horrible. I mean, it's good we won, or it's you know it's good that you know like there was this victory, but um, geez, it would have been satisfying to go and you know tell them what's what, you know, mm. these people, and and you know and make them feel the fear mm. that they make, you know, women feel because it's not cool. Mm. Yeah, I saw there was an all-women's boxing club that were prepared to uh, pick at one of their meetings. Um, uh, on a related note, just a uh, community service announcement. Things weren't going well in my relationship. Family violence was making life difficult at home, but I didn't know where I could go for help. I was unsure about my rights because I was not yet a permanent resident. I was worried that if we separated, I might not be able to stay in Australia. I went to InTouch and they were able to help me by telling me about my options. If you need migration advice, contact InTouch for a free and confidential discussion with a migration agent in your language by calling 1800 755 988 or search InTouch Multicultural Centre online. InTouch Brought to you by Victorian Women Lawyers and funded by Victoria Law Foundation. Uh, you are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio on 3CR. And, uh, yes, 
um, it's time for some activist calendar announcements. Um, Trade unionists organise against growing fascist threat. Unionists from across the union movement will meet on the 6th of February at Trades Hall, that's uh, tomorrow, to discuss organising against the far right and neo-Nazis. The public meeting, Touch One, Touch All, Racism, the Fascist Threat and How Unions Can Fight It, is sponsored by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, a united front of grassroots organisations and activists, including unionists. So uh, if you're a rank-and-file unionist or a union organiser, um, see if you can get along to that tomorrow. It's uh, it's at 2pm in Meeting Room 1 at Trades Hall, corner of Victoria and Ligon Streets in Carlton. Ban onshore gas and grow renewables. Join us on the steps of the Victorian Parliament on the first sitting day of 2016 to put the ban on onshore gas and call for ambitious Victorian renewable energy targets on top of the political agenda. We need the Andrews Government and Parliament to stand with the community on onshore gas and renewable energy. Against. It's time to put an end to the uncertainty hanging over communities from gas development and it's time to grow renewables to see more wind farms and solar built, grow jobs and cut pollution. That's uh, Monday 9th of February, meet at 11.30 on the steps of Parliament House on Spring Street in Melbourne. Speakers from 11.45, photo event at 12.10. Organised by Friends of the Earth, Quit Coal Victoria and Yes to Renewables. Um, and on a related note, we interviewed John Knox last week, who was part of a small group of people who were facing court about a protest at AGL uh, headquarters back in 2014. Um, and I can report that um, John Knox and most of the uh, co-defendants in that case received a small fine and did not have... Um, a uh, criminal record recorded against their name, and um, one of the defendants did um, have a slightly larger fine. Um, they are someone who'd been involved in some protests before. So, uh, yeah, pretty good outcome in that case. Uh, those those activists are not uh, facing, um, you know, serious stuff on their criminal record or massive fines. So that's that's good to see. Um, uh, sustainable, we've got the Sustainable oh, it's carrying yep. on. Sustainable Living Festival, yep. 6th of Feb, 9am, Sunday to 28th February, 6pm. Um, Monday, uh, 6th of February, Sunday, yep, so February uh, 28th. Sorry, uh, community-based, not-for-profit organisation committed to promoting and practising the principles of sustainable living. And um, there's info at slf.org.au. Uh, forum. Oh, sorry. Yeah, this forum is is part of the um, Sustainable Living Festival. It's on the on their calendar of events. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the forum Paris and After: Which Way Forward for the Climate Movement? Uh, on that's on the 17th of February at 6:30 p.m. Um, global leaders have reached an agreement on climate change, but what does the Paris Agreement actually mean? What should the local climate movement be focusing on now? includes an eyewitness report from a local citizen journalist recently returned from Paris. Speakers include John Engelhart, climate activist, citizen observer at Paris Summit, Andrea Bunting, Climate Action Moreland and Socialist Alliance, David Spratt, climate activist, co-author of Climate Code Red, presented by Green Left Weekly. 
A sustainable living festival event. Suggested donation at the door, $3 or $5 solidarity. Cheap vegetarian meal available from 6pm. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. So, uh, and one final announcement. Rally, these cuts are killing us. End healthcare austerity. On, that's on the 20th of February, 12pm. Saturday, 20th of February, the Turnbull Coalition government is reducing funding for pathology tests. This could lead us to paying at least $30 for pap smears and urine and blood tests. These tests save lives and nobody should go without healthcare because they can't afford it. We need publicly provided free and accessible pathology rather than cuts that bring uncertainty and anxiety to some of the most vulnerable in society. Only action will stop these cuts. Sign the petition here. Stop the cuts. Uh, 12 noon, State Library, 328 Swanson Street. So that's on the 20th of February at 12pm. And uh, just one final news item. The Coalition and Labor have joined forces to vote down a motion to grant amnesty to almost 270 asylum seekers currently in Australia. The 267 people, including 37 babies, are facing the prospect of being sent to Nauru in the wake of, yesterday, uh, in the wake of yesterday's High Court judgment, which upheld offshore immigration detention. Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young today moved a motion in the Senate asking for federal government to allow asylum seekers to remain onshore. In full, the motion read, the Senate calls on Turnbull government to grant amnesty to the 267 men, women and children in Australia as part of the M68 High Court challenge and allow them to stay. It was defeated 10 to 40 with independent Senator John Madigan signing with the Greens. So, uh, yeah, that was the, um, obviously, as mentioned previously, the, the rally, the snap actions that happened around Australia. That's the uh, High Court decision that triggered them. Series in East Brunswick has a new state-of-the-art community kitchen. The kitchen is available to hire seven days a week by individuals or groups who want to run a workshop or a course, hold an event or just get together to cook with friends. Series is also running team building days and hens parties with a difference. Get in touch with us at series.org.au or call 9389 0100 to find out more. Series Community Kitchen, celebrating collaboration and food. Group space for hire to train, connect and inspire. Series, a 3CR supporter. Alrighty, you're listening to Green Left Radio Breakfast on 3CR. And uh, this morning we have got the chair of Groundswell Gloucester, Julie Lyford. Um, Julie uh, received an Order of Australia medal uh, at some point, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly when, Julie. <laughs> um, Julie was the mayor of Gloucester from 2007 till 2009 and stepped back from um, her um, position on council uh, in order to better defend uh, Gloucester against um, uh, the proposed 
coal seam gas projects that would come through and, and frack the place to bits and trash this beautiful community. So, Julie, uh, until yesterday, residents of Gloucester and surrounding areas were living with the threat of coal seam gas trashing a community. Uh, a lot of 3CR listeners would have seen the movie Gasland. Just recently there's been footage of gas bubbling out of the Condamine River in Queensland, adjacent to where fracking has been occurring. Yep. Uh, it must have been really scary to, to think that this was uh, this was all coming to Gloucester, yeah? Yeah, look I, th- I, look, I think the really interesting thing has been people's eyes have been open to the lack of good process in government and what appears to be collusion between government departments and the resource extraction industry. We see time and time again approvals that Blind Freddy would say, there's a real problem with this. Um, they're just ticked off. Every time we went back to government, which we did on um, so many occasions, with scientific fact to show them that this should not be occurring in Gloucester, they would find ways to get around it. They would find ways. And they actually called it adaptive management. If something went wrong, they would adaptively manage that issue. We, we were astounded. You know, I think when people realise that injustice is there, once you open your eyes to it, you cannot close your eyes in whatever it is you care about. And uh, this fight has actually galvanised so many people, ordinary folk, who've never, ever stood up against government before or industry. That's been the most exciting thing, to see people say, this isn't right and I actually need to do something about it. Hmm. And... um just for, for context, like uh, 3CR is obviously based down here in Melbourne. Yep. Uh, can you paint a picture for our listeners of the Gloucester area? This is a really beautiful place, yeah? Yeah, it's a stunning place. And in, in the 1970s, we actually tried to, uh, well, I wasn't living here then, but as council, we, we kept trying to have this happen, to actually get it gazetted on the Heritage Register as a as an area of environmental and beautiful significance. And, you know, they kept stalling it, stalling it, stalling it. We now know why. Um, But it's just stunning. Uh, Lots of people were moving here, tree changes. The community is an amazing um, place. There's so much diversity of creativity. It's a long-standing agricultural community. There's a depth of integrity here and passion that um, has seen this community go through waves of issues uh, but we always come out on top we're resilient and strong and now people can come back they, they can have confidence to come back and live here fresh rivers we're sitting right underneath the world heritage barrington top uh, just a wonderful spot yeah hmm. and uh, of course the announcement yesterday from agl that they're going to pull up stumps, get out of Gloucester, and uh, they're going to get out of uh, coal seam gas extraction around Australia. Um, yes. what, what are some of the fronts that this campaign was fought on? Who were some of the groups that fought the good fight and, uh, you know, drove Goliath out of Gloucester? Yeah, look, I, look, there are so many people to thank and at risk of missing people out. I mean, for a start, I would have to applaud the Greens. Jeremy Buckingham, Lee Rhiannon, all of the, they've been the stalwarts, but all of the Greens uh, and the Greens Party that have consistently stood up for our community, travelled here. I know Lee's left here at four o'clock in the morning to just come and help us at a, a community meeting and drive all the way back to Sydney and Jeremy. They have been 
so instrumental in getting the word out there. So hats off to the Greens. They are the only party standing up for communities and for the environment and for the injustices that are being perpetrated by both state and Liberal governments. Um, prior to this, I was fairly apolitical. I can assure you that the most staunchest National Party people in Gloucester are now voting Greens because they're seeing how badly let down they are. The other groups, you know, where do we start? Um, lock the gate, our land, our water, mm. our future, the Sunrise Project, 350.org, the Nature Conservation Council. Um, gosh, I hope people aren't offended if I forget them, but, you know, we will list them all. But the other thing that's been really incredible um, are all the other community organisations like in Bulga fighting the coal, mm. um, fighting Shenhua, the Liverpool Plains Group, I mean, Karuna, were sort of the leading light with their blockade up there. Mm. Just phenomenal. And I think that's, you know, that's the, the really exciting thing for me is to be part of a movement that's grassroots, that, that, that is born from the sense of injustice as to what's been perpetrated and pushed onto communities and their environment. And also starting to understand how poor government departments, uh, how poor the legislation is and how easy it is for those resource extraction companies to infiltrate the bureaucracies of government. It's quite shocking. There's quite a lot mm. that's been unveiled already. But, you know, I don't think people can idly stand by and say, well, someone will fix it. Everyone has to step up to the plate and actually be part of our democracy growing up and moving forward. Mm. Yeah, we were just talking to Jim Casey before, and he was saying that uh, it's it's there's only so much politicians can go, can do, and social movements, people standing up in big numbers, is is really the crucial thing if you're going to stop things like AGL destroying Gloucester. Yeah, look, I, I firmly believe. I have to say, the last 18 months to two years, working with a lot of young people um, and I really I really want to say this because you know you often hear people sort of in their 60s and 70s saying you know what are young people doing <laughs> I, I mean I am just uh, enthralled by the integrity the wisdom the passion the intellect the drive uh, of the young people that I've been working with over the last 18 months to two years intensely in the investment space you know um, market forces, the, the climate change movement and the coalitions, I just, I just have a great sense of hope that, that good change is coming and coming very quickly. I think it's very exciting. And our generation, people who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s, we owe a lot of gratitude to the younger generation and it's our duty to try and help them deal with what we have actually perpetrated on on society unwittingly probably unknowingly but we need to really get our act together and assist the younger generation this is about intergenerational equity and um hats off to everybody that's working in this space well, as a youngish person in my early 30s, I can say that I don't blame you or your generation for what, you know, big coal or coal seam gas companies are doing. But, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's definitely good to be working together. And mm. vice versa, there's, there's a lot of strong activists um, in that Hunter Central Rivers Alliance. 
uh, in, in the, across the Hunter Valley up your way mm. who, who are older people, who are from that sort of baby boomer tree change generation, yeah. like Bev Smiles, for instance. Absolutely. Um, mm. You know, she's... Um, she's a friend of mine was part of this this kind of commune that, that Bev initially um, was part of up near Mudgee mm-hmm. back in the 70s, and uh, she's been a real tireless fighter. So, yeah, that, that intergenerational yeah. joining together in struggle is... Look, I just find the people in Hunter, Bev Smiles, um, the people that fought the Tilligra Dam, uh, Sally Corbett, uh, Steve Phillips, from Lock the Gate and George Woods from Lock the Gate. Unbelievable, this strength mm. and energy that they've brought. Uh, and, and the support that they've given to so many people, not just with the coffee and gas fight, but the coal fight, which is still ongoing, which is still we, just crazy stuff. We're, with what we all know now, it's like, you know, let's transition very quickly in the Hunter to renewables. There are a lot more jobs in the renewable space. Mm. But, you know, with, with the Gloucester fight, I think it's been really incredible because Lucas Malopo started fracking here in 2003, 2004. They knew back then the connectivity between the faults and the 3,000 old coal bore exploration holes was an issue because they had well blowouts back then. And what's been astounding to us is the lies and the manipulation of data that well-known engineering firms and state government bureaucracies um, have attempted to thwart any honesty in the process. And And what's resulted in that is a very large energy company has bought into a gas field with incorrect information being given to them. And I think eventually that will all come out. Um, we certainly have exposed a lot of the key issues in our documents on the Groundswell Gloucester website, in particular our environmental, social and governance report on this whole situation. Um, but it's a story that needs to be told because what's happened in Gloucester has been happening in every other community. And if we can get some funding to research and link up all of our documents, I think it will be an indictment on certain people within government departments here Mm. in New South Wales and in Queensland. I think the pattern will start to emerge as to who's been doing what behind the scenes. Mm. It's very clear that there's a strong link between certain people within government and resource extraction companies. We will look back in five, ten years' time and say, how did this happen in the modern era of Australia? Mm. I sort of think it kind of, just what you're saying, it kind of makes me think of the ICAC inquiries into developers. And it's like, why not an ICAC inquiry into... um, yeah, into into the links between politicians and resource extraction. I think you, I think you're spot on the money. Well, it's an interesting thing because last we've had some very interesting conversations in the last 12 months, uh, without identifying the senior bureaucrat in resources and energy. When we said to them, look, you know, we've put in Gippers, which are freedom of information requests about this particular issue. We were told there were four of us in the room. We were told that Gippers were wasting their staff time. The past is the past. Forget about it. I mean, this is an incredible thing to come from a from a senior bureaucrat. And when we said to this person, please, can you come to Gloucester? Can you actually come and meet our community and understand where we're coming from? You know, come and visit us. The comment back was, I'm sorry, I don't drive. 
Now, you know, catch the train. Well, that was that was that. But you know, (laughs) it sounds it sounds trivial. But when you go and you meet with senior bureaucrats, that is not the kind of response that you expect. The respect for communities we have found, especially at the federal level, astounding at the federal level um, with with the politicians that are really pro resource extraction. How they have dealt with communities has been appalling. It will come out. Eventually, this story is going to be written. And, you know, those people will be held accountable. Um, however, I guess the thing I can say to everybody that's listening and communities that are in, in this fight against this injustice that's being perpetrated upon them is that don't give up because your integrity and your passion and your clear science, your clear facts, will win the day. So Mm. be really good with your research. Make sure your research is spot on. Make sure you catalogue everything. Make sure you timeline everything. Because one day, the collusion and the culpability of governments and industry will be out there for everybody to read. Mm. And uh, it it must be very relieving having taken on such massive odds and and, and one. Is there going to be a big street party in Gloucester this weekend or something like that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Last night a few of us got together and I think we didn't know whether to laugh, cry or what to do really. But, um, you know, we have to thank Gloucestershire Council as well. They've been instrumental and also all of the councils on the mid-north coast of of, uh, Australia. Mm. They all got together and supported Gloucestershire Council to say, we do not want AGL, we do not want coal seam gas anywhere on the eastern seaboard. That was very clear, so we thank them, you know, deeply. Um, But, yeah, look, what was happening, the most exciting thing is we were planning, a group of people have been planning a, a festival weekend on the Valentine's weekend, which is weekend after this, on the 12th and 13th and 14th, it was, it's being called for the love of Gloucester. <laughs> it's now actually turned into a celebration of why everybody should move to Gloucester <laughs> and, and enjoy the love that's here and the healing that's happening. And, yeah, look, I, I think we'll be having a fantastic time. You can camp there. You can, you can go into the beautiful B&Bs or the camping site in Gloucester, the caravan park, ring the Visitor Information Centre. They've got all the information on that. There'll be bands. There'll be barbecues. There'll be stalls. Um, yeah, right. We just want to see some happy faces and, and regroup, refresh ourselves, and get out to the Pilliga and support Camden. Yeah, because they're, can... they're the areas that really need to now have the focus. Take the focus off. Come and celebrate with yeah. us. And then we thank kick, you, but... kick the buggers out of build, Camden. Yeah, and build the momentum. Right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, All right, Julie, we, we've got to go because Beyond Zero Emissions are coming in next. Thanks oh, so okay. much for talking to us. Thank you and, for having me on. And congratulations once again. It's really thank good to you. see you. Look, it, it, the victory belongs to everybody. Word. All right. Catch you next time. Thank you. Bye. Yes, uh, Julie Lyford there, the chair of Ground Soil Gloucester. And that is us. And My, um, fi- my final show. Yeah, Fergal's final show. So uh, thank you very much, Fergal, for coming along. It's been a pleasure. Fergal's going back to Brisbane. It's, it's been, been damn good pleasure. having you here. And, uh, yeah, hopefully you can get into some community radio and be a Brizzy correspondent. All right, stick go. around. Beyond Zero Emissions Radio coming up. Thanks for listening to Green Life Radio Breakfast.
This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.